Top two poker podcast. Count it down, creepy cyborg. Three, two, one, zero. You like flopped a royal and got two people shoving <laughs> into you, right? Support your beard grooming products. Top two poker minds. Oh my gosh. And <laughs> that's all we have. And take three. Uh, take three? So, <laughs> take one, we ended up finding out we're definitely human. Uh, Train wreck. Because we tried it and... and it We tried to wing it. It was, yeah, we, we kept talking about the preparation we were going to do for two and a half weeks and then life happened and it didn't happen. And then Chase, as I'm like so <sighs> seething mad, do you want to explain what happened with take two? <laughs> well, I didn't, I forgot that I set my options to start recording at the beginning of the Skype call. So I hit the record button again, and it stopped. And I'm now feeling the wrath of Andrew. <laughs> so so the guy whose job it, that is to hit the record button didn't hit the record button. And then 40 minutes into it, in an hour podcast, you're like, well, at least we didn't go any further without... <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's the bright side, because you can figure it three minutes into it, we had to be done, uh, or almost <sighs> done. But uh, that is my best friend, ladies and gentlemen. He outthinks people for a living, and he levels himself daily. Um, so let's. I'm going to give you. Here a, we are. Uh, yeah, and here we are. So I'm going to give you a couple minutes to make me suffer through yet again uh, what's been going on in your life, which is, I guess, you have fallen. Wow, victim. you are so interested in my life. I'll tell you again. Okay, <laughs> you've fallen victim to the Pokemoning. Um, Yes. Oh, oh yes, dude. I, I really don't know what you have against Pokemon. It is a gentleman's game. Oh. It is a, <laughs> possibly a child's game. <laughs> so, so, so explain it to is, me. It's so fun, though. I mean, there's nothing. How can you say anything bad about it? You go outside. You do stuff. If you're really lazy, you drive your car around, which is not advisable. Don't play Pokemon in your car. You'll die. But... <laughs> It's fun. I mean, you catch different Pokemon. Poke, catch them, catch them, gotta catch them all. I mean, my level... I wanna be the very best. I wish you No one ever one. was. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. To catch them is my true test. To train them is my cause. Pokemon. I really hope that that's an impromptu song that you just <laughs> invented right now. And that that's not... I don't know whether I'm more like perturbed that that might be actually the real Pokemon song, or that's something you just invented out of the... I will travel across the land, searching far and wide, each Pokemon to understand the power that's inside Pokemon. So... I can keep going. So now that you have yet again made sure our four viewers or listeners have gone down to, like, one, uh, I guess we can continue. Why don't we get to something well, that maybe we can yeah okay all right what's really going on yeah uh, talk to me about really your life okay. and uh it's been what maybe two or three weeks since we we did yes yeah, two, two and a half three weeks probably about that i played a limit hold'em tournament probably the only limit hold'em tournament i will play it all year it was some local guys the limit hold'em crew around here put together three thousand three hundred dollar buy-in limit hold'em game Little one day, I think we played like nine hours. There were 16 entries, and it was re entry. I was two of those 16 entries, and I rose victorious. 
I mean, that's that's not a huge surprise. I would have probably <laughs> thought you would the under over on your amount of re-entries would have been like four or five. Um, you know, I have to ask you, how do you re-enter into a limit hold'em tournament? Because that means that you're putting <laughs> in a lot of small and big bets bad. Yes, I put in many big, big, big bets and went into the felt. <laughs> And then and then I re-entered when we were at the final table and it was like getting towards the end of entry. I probably re-entered with like ten big bets. I mean, uh, it was it was gamble mode in typical. But it was, it was a good spot. The the final table competition was you know pretty good for me. So in all seriousness, what do you think happened with your your first bullet? Were you overplaying a little bit, or did you just get in some spots where ran a little bit bad? I so I have played quite a bit of shorthanded limit hold'em, and it was apparent that some of them maybe weren't as familiar. So I was taking hands to showdown, which is kind of what I thought was mandatory. But they were they were not adjusting their ranges. They weren't value betting light enough, and I was taking them them to showdown a lot, which I think was a mistake. First couple couple levels, I was going to showdown too much. Mm. Okay, so I mean, because I was I was adjusting and they weren't is essentially what was happening. Well, but then to be a contrarian, you're supposed to be the people person that outthinks people for a living. So I guess right. I guess that's where you did make the adjustment after bullet number one uh, burned to flames, and then uh, you end up. Well, yeah, I made the easy adjustment after bullet number one. I won every pot for like forty five minutes and was a chip leader. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a lot of times but how those things go one, for you. One guy, one guy dubbed it Chase O'Clock. <laughs> that hour of my life. Wow. Um, fair enough. But there, there's an interesting story, a little bit about the guy you ended up uh, chopping it with, right? Do you want to take us through that? Yeah. Yeah. The if you remember, I shipped a WSOP bracelet this last summer, and for that, I sold I sold 25 percent of all the tournaments I played that summer. And a guy knit by the name of Duke Lee was a one of the three primary shareholders. So he got a chunk of my summer bracelet. And I'm playing in a Limp Hold'em Cash game the night before the tournament. And, like, kind of, I'm coming into the game, and this guy's getting out of the game. And he says, oh, hi, Chase. And he, you know, says hi to me by name. And I'm like, oh, crap, man, I should really know that guy's name, probably. So I don't think much of it. Next day, he's playing the tournament. And come to find, I actually catch his name, Duke. And I'm like, it clicks right there. Oh, Duke, yeah, this is the guy who had a, a piece of my bracelet. And sure enough, we uh, we chop a heads up. Oh, for very cool. 19,800 19, each. Oh, nice. Very nice. So and it, it lasted, you said, just about a full day, maybe nine, ten hours of play? Yeah, I think it was nine or ten hours. Cool. Very cool. Other than that, I mean, you have plans to head out to Florida, you were talking to me uh, a little bit about? Yeah, we leave Friday. Okay. Friday, we're going to Fort Lauderdale, that one place. That one place that you couldn't remember very many details <laughs> about. Uh, yeah. But uh, So we're going to play like uh, there's 5K buy-in, 2,500 buy-in, and 1K buy-in, and this should be solid. Okay, very good. Well, best of luck, and hopefully we've got... Uh, something exciting to talk about that we can kind of fill our next podcast with. Hopefully you, uh, you end up. Yeah. You know what? I'll, I'll make an effort to record some hands and maybe bring, bring some hands ready to go and talk about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I think any, we'll use that, this format. If you get any, uh, interesting spots, um, you know, throughout the tournament or anything that you think is of value for like a teaching tool, 
Yeah. So let's. Why don't you tease and kind of talk about? Uh, we've got two segments today. Segment number one is. Segment one, we're going to talk about ethics, both from player perspective, and we both have some inside the industry, like staff experience. So we'll hit on kind of both of those sides of it. And then we'll hit on blind play. And I'm going to try to keep it a good framework, a good base, macro, kind of widespread look at blind play. And then from there, we can maybe look into going more detailed and specific in later podcasts. Uh, yeah, I think that that's going to be good. Because, <clears throat> you know, one thing I always like to do, which is, uh, you know, sometimes I feel in poker and, and with many things in life, we know what to do, but we don't know why we're doing it. So I think it'll be good for us to walk through together some of the concepts, the larger governing concepts for blind play. Um, and I know... Oh, show. I know you and I have been kind of going back and forth with this, and it's something you and I every once in a while would talk about anyways over the last five or ten years, which is just what's surprising to me is as an industry, poker players, I mean, obviously are not governed by any body. Like as soon as you're a professional poker player, they don't hand you a card you put in your wallet like a real estate agent. But uh, I mean, I would almost think that people should take it that serious, which is – you know, a lot of more professional organizations, obviously, like lawyers have a bar association, you know, doctors have a code of ethics and a Hippocratic Oath, um, real estate agents, you know, and so on and so forth. And I think the difference is a lot of us transition from playing online to now showing up, most of us in America, at least, brick and mortar. And I think that we should really think about do we as poker players in general have an obligation to behave ourselves in a certain way? So should we carry ourselves with a certain level of professionalism? And I don't mean like dressing in a suit at the felt, but I think that there's just a lot of common things. We wanted to kind of start with some of the negative examples that, that you and I have seen and do see that they're pretty prevalent, right? Yes, sir. What's Go one ahead. of the, yeah. What's one of the big ones for you? Uh, one of the big ones for me is the, uh, I would say breaking tables would be one of the biggest ones. When there's a action player or kind of the reason for the season kind of guy that the game is running around or he's really pulling, he's like, he's a black hole of poker action, right? Everyone wants his action and everyone wants to play with him. Well, this guy is good for the room. He brings people in. He starts games, games start around him. And when he leaves, it's like that. The game's done. People get up. They can't play a, a big blind. You know, deal me out on my big blind. Yeah, and, and I see that a lot too, which is, you know, there aren't as many, like, middle stakes games as there used to be. Uh, just around, you know, Vegas, California, and just really around the U.S. And I think that that's true for most of the world in brick and mortar. And so I think that we should be handling these types of action players that we want to play with, with a little bit more care because, you know, I see it too out here where, you know, and I've seen the other side of it as on the staff side, you know, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. You know, when a guy walks up to me and goes, Hey, you know, why does everyone always leave when I get up? You know, and, and we have to be very sensitive to that because I think that, we need to remember that, you know, not everyone is coming to the felt for the same reason. And a lot of these, mm -hmm. you know, recreational players, um, you know, or fish or action players, donkeys, you know, whatever you want to call them, 
you know, you got to realize they easily can be doing something else with their money. I mean, you know, even a casual game like a hundred dollar buy in four eight limit hold'em, two hundred dollar buy in like one two blind game. You know, if you're peeling off buy in after buy in, you know, and the average American makes fifty thousand a year, you know, that's before tax. You know, people that are actually playing in games that are large enough for people to make a living off of, or even a part time income, you know, these are people that are wealthy and accomplished in life. Yeah, these are not dumb people. You don't you don't become a doctor by being an idiot and being unobservant and not being able to tell when someone's hustling you when when they're insta quitting a game or when you when you get up for a table change and all of a sudden there's a line behind you to get on the table change. Oh, list. that's the worst. And, and I mean, come on, guys, just wait for the guy to get his table change. You know, give it a, a minute. You know, discreetly get a hold of the floor. Say, hey, can you put me on there? You don't have to walk up to the board and make a big ordeal about it or yell across the room. It's just the way you go about it. Yeah, and, and you know, and we're we're big advocates for you guys finding those edges. And you know, in podcast one, we uh, we plugged it that you know, yeah, I mean, game selection is is one of your biggest tools to increasing your win rate without being a better player. You know, being if there's three games and you're in the worst game, you know, your win rate goes up immensely just by table changing or quitting. You know, um, and I've. <laughs> definitely fallen victim and I, i've watched you fall victim to just you know we're there to play poker oh, yeah. so we just sit I'm there play until i get even <laughs> these guys have my money sure you know and, and there's that side of it but i think the thing that we're trying to advocate in this podcast is just the common sense to realize that there's producers and we as you know even someone like myself where you know i serve myself an educated you know, casual player that I'm definitely, when I come to the felt, I'm not there to give away my money. I'm trying to be competitive and I don't, uh, it's not a primary source of my income, you know, but I'm trying to turn a profit at the end of the year, whatever format I'm playing, you know, we're the consumers. And I think that there's a predatory nature to poker a little bit. And by that, I mean, if you guys haven't really thought of this before, we're looking for edges in any way we can, psychological, mental, you know, um, when someone walks up to the table somewhat drunk or, you know, coming out of the club in Vegas when it's World Series of Poker time and they sit down there and they're like, you know, peel out like a wad of hundreds. I mean, you start to drool and you're like, OK, well, great. I know I'm probably, you know, way ahead of him. Uh, and, yeah, yeah. you know, there's uh, there's a producer. We are the consumers. We are the predators when we're at the table. But with that, I think everyone has to in whatever way they can realize that there's a larger a larger ecosystem and we we've definitely gone over this chase and i mean like what does that mean to you as someone who i mean every time you sit down at a table your immediate goal is to take every chip in a cash game and in a tournament to get first you have to take every chip but at the same time walk me through what what that means you know when you think of it as a larger ecosystem and the implications of that uh if i had to use an analogy so it's like if a contractor gets contracted to do a job you should be efficient at your job. You should not try not to be wasteful of, say, your supplies or whatever might be an extra cost, your labor, etc. But once you start cutting corners, once you start screwing over customers, when you look at that might be good for you. And here's the tough thing. Poker is a one player game. There is no team aspect of poker because the GPL is not in every casino, you know, <laughs> and it's a one-player game. It's hard to argue with the logic that this is good for me. 
Well, yes, it may be. But if we zoom out and we look at this or we look long term, we're not looking at is good today. Well, next week, this guy might not come back. You're not going to get repeat business from this client. Or this guy is not going to play in your poker game again because you're abusing him or because you're making him feel like an idiot. So take a long view of things. Yeah, and I, I think that's the difference is the short versus the long view, which is, you know, there's so many analogies and, and there's so many like idioms and sayings, but I mean, can't see the forest through the trees, which is, I know that sometimes like there are even poker pros who their game is tilting people. Their game is to make someone miserable, intimidate them, you know, like slow roll them. And, and I just think that that's really, really mostly bad. Um, and if you're one of those people that you, you know, like maybe a, a Michael Mizraki, the grinder, which is a super ironic nickname. But I mean, someone like that, that his style is extremely aggressive and punishing and explosive, like as far as a tournament player. You know, I don't know the guy personally, but I would say even if that's your style of play, it doesn't mean you have to have like toxic table talk and it doesn't mean that you have to be demeaning about it. I mean, you can still yeah, be yeah. dominant and aggressive and we advocate a very, um, a, you know, always an aggressive style in, in different forms. But uh, I think, you know, a simple thing is people transition from behind a computer screen into, you know, uh, a brick and mortar casino. And sometimes people don't realize how bad it is, like barbing someone or, you know, berating someone's play. It just really, you know, some of those people come to the, come to play poker simply for a social outlet. And when it stops being fun, like it's not about the money they lose because some people actually make such an immense amount of money or are at a position in life where some of their money is dispensable or uh, dispensable income. You know, that's not the issue. But as soon as it stops being fun and as soon as it becomes, oh, you cracked my pocket aces and you're like glaring at them for the next hour, you know, they feel uncomfortable and they quit. Yep. There's no turning off the chat box in live poker. <laughs> you just got to sit <laughs> yeah. in that discomfort and it's it's agony. And not that we have to be, like, white knights or anything, but, for example, the other night I was playing 1025, and it was, like, recreational player on recreational player violence. There was an older gentleman that clearly had a lot of money and was just there to play cards and relax, and, you know, he didn't really talk much. He was just kind of new in his thing, having a good time. And there was one player that was there to, like, strategize and try to beat the best, and very kind of talkative and a couple times the older gentleman you know he was calling a lot of bets just getting to the river a lot and that was how he wanted to play and this this other guy who wants to be super strategist starts uh giving it to him when when he calls him down and like rivers two pair and me and another one of the good players you know all of a sudden we're in a mode where like we don't want to we don't want either one of these guys to be mad, so it's a bit uncomfortable, but we get in this mode where we're almost kind of trying to deflect the venom that this guy is sending at this older gentleman. So uh, not that we have to be white knights, but we should just be aware of how things that we're saying and things that other people are saying are affecting the flow of the game and the economy. And at the bare minimum, be nice, guys it's not hard to sit there and smile at someone and every once in a while and you don't have to be talkative. You don't have to be like an ambassador of the game at the bare minimum. Be nice. And if you want to go above and beyond that, by all means. Well, and, and I would even say if, uh, 
you know, if you're not going to be nice, at least be neutral, which is I am, yeah. you know, a little bit more of like a car salesman than you. Well, a lot more of a car salesman yeah. than you. <laughs> Um, yeah, you're a little social butterfly networker. Yeah, not exactly how I would describe myself, but fair enough. Um, you're a butterfly. Yeah. Uh, at least you didn't use a Pokemon analogy. Oh my gosh, I was just thinking uh, of one. Stop. I was just going to say you're a Venonat. Oh my gosh. I hope, you're a, a Butterfree. I, I, oh, butter I hope no one understood that other than you. Uh, and maybe you're a lovely I'm a little wife. embarrassed. I said Venonat because it's a totally wrong Pokemon. You're a Butterfree. Okay. <laughs> Any, anyways, <laughs> uh, I'm certainly going to punish you after this for that. Um <laughs> But I, I think, you know, you know, I am naturally more outgoing. You know, I have no problem, like, making friends, talking to strangers and, you know, schmoozing and doing that whole thing. That's kind of my, you know, one of my, you know, longer talents in life, larger talents in life. But, you know, you're someone that is not, you know, geared the same way as me socially. But at the same time, one thing I would say that I've always noticed about you as a poker player, especially as you've gotten more mature, is you have tried to just be neutral where you don't, you know, inflame people. You, if you see an angle that someone's running like verbally on someone or like berating someone else, that's going to be toxic for the game. You'll, you'll step in then. But for the most part, like when people engage you, like even when you're uh, playing for your bracelet, you know, the other guy was having a good time, you know, and you're not, you're not going to blow them off and be an a-hole and make it so that, you know, I think maybe that's, you know, we haven't talked about this yet, but maybe that's a good example where Eric, you know, he's a biology teacher. You know, for him, it's excellent that he, he got to second place. And yeah, he's he was on the ultimate up. free roll, having a good time, and the guy gets heads up for a bracelet. I mean, it was the time of his life. Yeah. And I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to not talk to this guy. Granted, I'm not I'm not chatting up a storm while we're playing a hand, but in between hands or after hand, you know, we're laughing, we're chatting. And why not make this guy feel comfortable? Why not let him have a good time? Yeah, and, and I think it's, you know, different strokes for different folks. I mean, but at the same time, like, I think it's important that that guy, at the end of the day, as much as you can and as much as you feel comfortable, that he wants to play poker again. Like, if you would say something inappropriate and just wrong, like, oh, you only deserve second place. I can't believe you made it this far. Something just completely ridiculously a-hole-ish from like a professional or like, Oh, you thought you could beat me. Like, this is what, you know, this is going to be the outcome nine times out of 10 or something that is a lot more just out of line, but it's probably been said many times before by plenty of pros to other people. It's just defeating. And we need people that are going to struggle to learn the game. And, you know, maybe Eric at a point in his life wants to play more professionally and wants to play semi-professionally or take that leap, you know, and that's a personal choice. But but we as a community need to not discourage people that are recreational, social, um, brand new. You know, it's disgusting to me when you've got a guy who plays, you know, even a small game like 4-8 Limit Hold'em every day and some person who's like seen poker on TV a little bit, not that familiar, they want to sit down and play and they're like willing to buy on 100 and, like, I get called over as a floor man, and I'm like, this person's slowing down the game. I'm like, are you kidding me? I was like, this person literally is, like, I'm looking at, it's like four spades on the board, and they've got, like, five and six of hearts, and they have, like, the bottom end of a bad gut shot. And, yeah. like, they're calling, but, I mean, they are slow, but, I mean, you don't want their action. And I understand that that's, like, a very small game. You know, but at the same time, I think that that mentality we we want people to conform to our standards and i just think sometimes as an industry we are very aggressive as poker players but we need to be very gentle with 
uh, the producers in this economy and in this ecosystem, I think. Absolutely. It reminds me of the situation where you have like one knit at the table that would rather play 12-handed. And <laughs> they're, they're like the bad player bus. And he's like, we need a time check on that seat. We need time check. It's been five minutes. We need to fill that seat. It's like, come on, guy. This guy can have five days if he says he's coming back. But uh, once again, they're taking the short view. They don't want to play eight-handed when they could be nine-handed. Yeah, I, I just I hate that. But I mean, let's talk about like a positive story because I think um, sure. you know a lot of the pros that I know at Commerce. I'm just I'm not never going to release their names because even if it's like glaringly obvious, because I, I told you about the story and you knew who I was talking about without releasing the name, but. Mm -hmm. Um, I just want to protect their privacy, but, uh, there was a guy probably, you know, and the dates are going to be off, but I'm going to just say a while back, maybe like 10 years ago when, when no limit, uh, was just starting to grow and become more popular live in California and the games were starting to get really, really big, you know, 25, 50, you know, blinds were a small game and he quickly transitioned and he actually used to work in the industry 15 to maybe maybe up towards of even closer closer to 20 years ago and this guy was was just playing no limit and he he became a, a really solid to good no limit player but he made it a point to like buy people coffee when he was on a list with an action player or a player he wanted to be in the game with he would always sit next to them and talk to them about business or this or this and just like laugh with them talk to them about sports bs and he eventually was invited to a lot of private home games that a lot of other pros were locked out of. Um, he was invited to Manny Pacquiao's game. I'll drop that name. At Commerce, there's a separate room that they've kind of built that has a lot of privacy. And funny enough, with Manny Pacquiao, when he was playing at Commerce, and there's a lot of other celebrities that, you know, more so in the past than now, Hollywood celebs that used to play in A-list names, Manny actually had a bunch of his entourage around him all the time. And he had a bunch of handlers and just guy friends. And they, for a while, I guess, and this is secondhand information, but what I heard is they would always keep track for the first while when he started playing of the people that would instantly break the game when he, Manny would leave. And they were so, he, Manny was so turned off and insulted by it that he locked those people out of the game. He locked those pros out of the game eventually. And yeah. this guy was always invited to his game, invited to private games, invited to a lot of other games that were like some of the juiciest games in maybe the world at the time. And, you know, I, his skill level, I mean, he's definitely an excellent player, but I mean, he used his, I don't know whether this is just something that's intuitive for him, but he made sure to take care of people like he would, um, he would take care of the staff very well. And and by that, I mean, not just financially, it's not like he was handing everyone $100 bills like they were candy, but I mean, he was very, very just nice. He knew all of the staff's names, still does. And I think that that, all of that goes a long ways. And Absolutely. And he's one of the, the success stories, I would say, of being the nice guy, being the nice girl in your local casino. And look, you spend a lot of time with the casino staff around you. This is kind of the next part of where this is going. Yeah. We know who you are as the professionals. You're there five days a week, four days a week, long hours. Some, some of you guys are in uh, your respective poker rooms more than I am, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And, and you want to realize that there is that ecosystem of money, of producers and consumers. But beyond that, there's an ecosystem of workers. And um, 
Chase, kind of go back a, a little bit into your background in, in the industry, and I'll go into mine a little bit after. So I got in the industry in the Seattle area, which is where I ended up meeting Drew, both through poker playing and we ended up working together. Um, Drew, was, I think you were my boss the whole time we worked together, right? We were never really peers. Mm. Yeah, that, you know, that's the way I like to remember it, so let's go with that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'll kind of cut to the – I mean, you end up having about five, six years, but, I mean, you had some management yeah. experience. I mean, you've um, – in Seattle, Sure, I was a supervisor in the Colorado area um, in one of the, like, podunk casinos in Yakima. I was a poker manager. Woo, woo, two-table room uh, for, like, two weeks. <laughs> yeah. Um, and small, small derail, but – I remember you got fired because I have to tell the story. We were living in a house like a, I don't know, like three or 4,000 square foot, pretty large house. There was four of us. And at that time, you could fire up poker anytime, day or night, because there was full oh, tilt, yeah. there were stars, it was an international community, it was, it was just the dream. And you would be notorious for just like ordering Domino's pizza and locking yourself in your room with like two, two pizza boxes and a two liter or, or more. Uh, <laughs> and, and your little Twilight, uh, trilogy or however many wretched books there yeah are. the audio tape playing on the- <laughs> yeah oh my <laughs> gosh and uh and you would you would lock yourself in there and like we just wouldn't know what happened to you sometimes we'd have to like check if you were still alive and like knock on the door and stuff but um you were on night shift and i was a manager at the local casino in the little poker room that that i ran down there and i was like man and they were like man your roommate's late uh, is he okay? He didn't call in, blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's going to be fine. He's going to be here. This this is me being disappointed, putting my faith in you, of course. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, he'll be here. An hour goes by. I'm like, what the heck? I was like, no text, no call. Try to call him, try to text him. And I'm getting, you know, medium concerned. And I'm like, man, there's no way, no way he slept four hours into his shift, five hours of shift. I was like, maybe you're in a car accident, something legitimate. Maybe you, you know, a doctor's office, something, emergency room. Hope not. But I get home, you know, after eight hours, no, 10 hours shift, 10 hours in Seattle. And I get home and I go and I knock on your bedroom door. And there you go with like your, your bed head and there's like <laughs> pizza boxes and everything. And you were like, oh man, did I miss part of my shift? Like, <laughs> you slept through your entire shift. I'm like, well, I better go down there. I was like, I'm pretty sure you're instantly fired. Uh, and thus uh, began one of your many runs into professional poker. Yeah, right. Right. All of a sudden, overnight professional poker player. <laughs> I was like, yeah, time to grind those tournaments. Yeah, for me, I mean, I've I've been in the industry off and on more more on than off uh, for the better part of, man, it's almost been 14, 15 years, 18 hey. to now 32, and I've... Uh, Veteran. Yeah, and then some. I've worked in the Seattle area for quite a bit. I was at the uh, Wynn in Highland of Baccarat uh, and in Table Games for two years. I've been at Commerce for about a year now. Um, I'm the relief poker supervisor, which means I take care of all of poker a couple days a week, and then the other couple days... Um, yeah, there's the primary poker supervisor, but it's a pretty big honor. I mean, commerce, if you've never been, is really amazing. On weekends, we build up to 120 live uh, poker tables ranging from 2-4 limit all the way up to 300-600 combo games and like a $40 buy-in, no limit, all the way up to like regularly 10-20 uh, buy-in and frequently we'll have something bigger. Um, just depends who's in town and the, the time of the year. But so I've, I've had a lot of experience in the industry and, and you've had a decent amount yourself. And I think um, 
we don't want to soapbox this too much, but I think part of the idea of having ethics and of, of how we should behave as people who are, quote, professionals is you need to think about this. Is when you lean too hard on the, on the staff in your local casino and when you're the bad guy or the bad girl or whatever, if you take 10 of my floor people, for instance, and if you really make it a bad environment for them because you expect more and you're like, man, this casino sucks. Like, you know, they don't really take care of us regular professionals very well. And, and, and sometimes that's a legitimate gripe. But if you then make it your job to make their job hell and every time they mess up a ruling or every time they mess up a, a table change, you know, be yelling at someone and going to a manager or writing emails. Um, what happens is the best the best runners, the best food servers, the best poker floors, they can do other things in life easily. I mean, they have outs. They can go to school. Some of them are. And they don't have to be there in the industry, which is not to say that, you know, maybe the bottom percent don't have outs too. But even more so, these people are highly marketable, very intelligent people that maybe they just love poker. Like I keep finding myself in and around poker rooms because it's something that I, I'm truly passionate about. And so I would just... I would just say to the community, you know, we have to be very careful or you should be very careful how you treat the staff because, you know, there are opportunities that I have within the rules to take care of you guys better, you know, and just a really quick example is we did last month at Commerce a promotion where you play 50 hours of logged play on a card, you swipe it at the table of a certain game type, like 816 limit and bigger, a five fifteen hundred dollar buy-in, which is a five and ten blind structure, no limit or pot limit Omaha. You get fifty hours, and we give you two hundred dollars in cash. So it's essentially obviously rake back, yeah, little little live rake back program. But I mean, like one of our players thought his hours might have been off, and that's something that I can easily shrug off, blow off, or you know, send off to our logistics partner department, which may or may not have the time to go through everything individually because there's a lot of a lot of punch-ins but i mean for this one local professional who really nice guy you know it's not that he tips me because he doesn't and that's that's fine with me but he's always respectable shakes my hand says hey how you doing you know i went through and i spent about 45 minutes of my day updating his logs found him about an hour and a half of a discrepancy which you know isn't a lot of money but i mean some value for him getting closer to that 50 hours for the promotion you know, but I would do and I would go above what is normal, above what is required for a player like that. Like I'd stay late at work, try to resolve an issue for them. I always let him know about promotions coming up, you know, and I think that's just because he always, you know, treats us with respect and treats my staff with respect. And for me as a manager, the people that treat my staff well is who really makes my job easier, too. You know, and it, I mean, talk a little bit about your experience now. I'll get off my little mini soapbox. <laughs> Yeah, uh, my my feedback as a former staffed poker room person and now as a professional player is tips are great. And like you just said, you don't necessarily have to tip someone to just be kind to them and be respectful to them and not make their job harder. But at the same time, I'll say it for you, no one's going to turn down a tip and a lot of these positions are on a tipped wage or tipped salary where tips are going to be a large part of their income. So a little hookup here and there, like when I won that tournament, you know, I, I'm going to give a little bit to the, the dealers and the floors and 
these guys work their asses off, so a little extra goes a long way. And you and you have a nitty tipping opening I'm, range. <laughs> like your opening uh, range for tipping yeah. is like the top five percent of tipping scenarios for me. Yeah, it's like some, yeah. someone saves, saves your life. Uh, you're giving them a five ski. Like like you're you're pretty uh pretty nitty compared to me. But I you know I, I respect it, and I think um as an industry guy like. You know, some people don't even know this. Like, you don't have to be given like a twenty dollar bill or bigger. Like, even five dollars. I mean, anything less than five is kind of insulting. Like a buck or two bucks to yeah manage to a to a supervisor. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, like, you know, five dollars once or twice a week to me. I mean, obviously, I do need the you know and appreciate the money, but a lot of times the way I take that is especially if you're a regular poker pro, you give me that tip. Because you feel that I provide a service for you, you know, and I, I and that's how I look at it, which is it's not just that exchange of money, which is like, oh, you expect me to repay this some way by helping you get more than five dollars in value. I don't look at it that way. I don't think you look at it that way as professionals. No. But I no, we're not bribing or expect or extorting you for anything. But if they're doing a good job, you're. You should be taking care of them, and if you're not, you're kind of perpetuating a problem. If if it's not a good environment, it's certainly not going to get better if you underpay and stiff employees. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know, I think that's another really big thing is not the is not the tipping, but you know, it's just the fair treatment. And I think you know, last thing I really want to say on the matter is just it's. You know, our job is chaotic and we, we, most of the people that I've worked with in this industry in Seattle and Vegas, anywhere, we understand that there's a producer and there's a consumer in this economy, whether that's for blackjack or whether it's for any gambling game in a casino, especially for poker. So we're behind the scenes going out of our way to arrange special transportation, fix meals for the guys and the girls that create, that build games around them. I mean, we're not oblivious to the fact that, oh, when Steve sits down, you know, we have a must move game and we have, you know, it fills up instantly. You know, we know those things. So we're on your side. We're l- trying to work towards the same goal, which is keep our place busy and get those recreational players to come back. You know, because we know if there are recreational players, there are pros who will or serious players who will gamble with them. Yep. 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 So. I think now that I've soapboxed a little bit and gotten that off my chest, feels good. Um, <laughs> do you want to kind of go into? Yeah, it's hit the blind play, huh? Yeah, let's get into some little little blind play because I know that, you know, I mean, obviously we get to be a little bit selfish in this since it's our podcast. This was an area that you know, and I think it's a you know applicable to all forms of poker, but especially we're going to focus on MTTs. This was an area where I consistently saw myself busting in those middle or late stages of tournament where the ante is getting pretty significant. And I'm, you know, I got really frustrated uh, at a point and I think we started having conversations and we'll just revisit some of those things that we've gone through. So blind play, I would say is the fastest way to improve your win rate. And that's mostly a mechanic of just how the betting works. When you're forced to put money in and you're out of position and you're forced to either give up all that money or play speculative hands, which you may be uncomfortable with. You certainly will be at the beginning. I mean, it's just a recipe for you to lose 
lots of equity to lose lots of your win rate in that position. So so you have a little I mean you broke it down to me really really well when we were talking and when we were doing uh some of our prep for this. So talk to me just about how bad it is being the big blind. A common way to express your win rate in no limit hold or any any kind of uh poker game is in big blinds per 100 hands. So if you're sitting at a table and you're paying your and you're under the gun and you don't aren't forced to put any money in, you're starting at zero big blinds per 100. So you if you folded every time, if you folded 100 times in a row under the gun, you're at zero per 100. And that's because now, uh sorry to interrupt, but that's because we do have that option, right? Which is if if we live for infinity and we could play enough to say oh my gosh after the first 10,000 years of my life I realize that I'm not a good player and under the gun I'm losing money I can actually as a strategic option just choose to fold out every hand under the gun and then create neutrality which is I don't win money and I don't lose money in that spot right yeah I mean there's a rare player that is playing I mean kind of some of the recreational players that are playing like 80% of the hands under the gun and are net losing when they're not forced to put any money in. And you could just smack them over the side of the head and give them a sleeper hold, and they would be more profitable just by folding. So we need to understand where the base level is. So when we're in the big blind, and we're forced to put in one big blind, so every 100 big blinds we play, we are at negative 100 big blinds per 100. So, I mean, that's huge. When a normal win rate in, say, a no-limit cash game online these days is anywhere from zero to like the biggest winners are like five big blinds per 100. I don't think anyone's hitting the double digits anymore in big blinds per 100. So when we're talking about the big blind being negative 100 big blinds per 100, man, that's a big, that's by far our biggest um, like black hole in our win rate. So if we can, if we can even bring that down, we're never going to get profitable from the big blind or the small blind really. We're never going to get profitable, but if we can do things to bring that down so it's not eating so much of our win rate up, then that's going to be one of the fastest and surest ways to improve our win rate. And I know this is not, uh, we're not going to go into this too much, but I mean, you know, and you knew, you know, you feel that pressure when you play even live cash where you're in this situation where it's folding around, no one's opened yet, and a late position person who is pretty aggressive in late position, either through stat tracking online or you're just picking up this frequency, playing for a couple hours, and you look down at a hand like Jack Seven Suited, where you're like, man, I would really like to defend this hand, but also it's not anything even close to premium. I wonder if like I can fold it. I think that for a lot of us players, we're kind of guessing blindly. I mean, it's not as simple a spot as yeah. where it's like um, you know you and I were going through the other day, where it's like you get you know, maybe with like 12 big blind stack in a tournament or 14 big blind stack in a tournament under the gun, you're looking at pocket threes. I mean, you really can't be opening, calling off raises. You can't really open, shove that hand. So the answer is very absolute. I mean, in almost all situations, unless, you know, you're in some weird hyper turbo structure or, you know, right. in your, something else is affecting the scenario. It's just a, it's just a simple fold. But in the big blind, we're incentivized by getting a discount because we have to look at the money we're forced to put in the pot is already dead. But at the same yes. time... and then this is where a tournament 
the tournament aspect comes into because when there's antis, there's essentially an extra big blind in the middle, as well as it's become fashionable to make these really small raises, which gives us an excellent price. Sometimes we're getting four or five to one. So overall, what if I'm hearing you right, what this is meaning is it's kind of like an interesting balance point on two sides, which is on one side, when we're in late position, we're heavily incentivized to be stealing and being aggressive, which is nothing new in poker, but that's something right. we need to reinforce that if you're not opening and if, um, and I'm sure maybe over time we can develop this and talk into what percentages you find in an MTT is really the ranges we should be opening, but we have to be opening more in late position. And that means we're, we're, you know, ext- expanding our, um, our opening ranges uh, quite a bit. So we're playing hands we normally wouldn't play. And then right. also that means for our big blind that we're both then countering Yeah, that. it's like, what do, you, what do you do about that? Well, I mean, one thing you can do is you can fold every time. And then, but then you're stuck at negative 100 big blinds per 100. So uh, we should be identifying hands that we can play and play reasonably well post-flop so from some stack sizes, that might not be quite as effective. I would say if you're not familiar with 20 big blind stack sizes, that's something you should heavily invest into. You should look into um, just how equity disperses when we're looking at a wide steal and we get to shove in 20 big blinds or less. Uh, the amount of folds that we get is... Amazing. If someone's opening 100%, which is not uncommon from the button, if we can get a fold 80% of the time and add like 30% of our chip stack, then we should almost be shoving any two. So, so something you walked me through pretty early into uh, my career, but something that you use a lot more frequently than I do is these equity tools uh, like Poker Stove, and now yep. I know you use probably Equilab and some of the other uh, tools that are, are even more advanced. But what that allows you to do is, is more accurately calculate using fold equity, like what type of a range of hand we should be reshoving out of the big blind when we're facing an aggressive action by someone in late position, a raise. Um, and talk to me a little bit about you know, pretend that I'm completely, completely clueless uh, and walk me through, like, you know, what is this typical song and dance and and what are we supposed to be doing? Okay. When we're talking about strictly reshoving stacks, so when someone opens and we want to go all in over the top, there's two ways to win the hand. We can win the hand by making them fold. Now, this is really important and something that's often overlooked when... When you come from like an especially tight background where you don't want to play many hands or you don't want to play these marginal hands, is if we can get them to fold half the time, then that half the time we pick up all the chips in the middle. And if say that the other half the time we're getting it in with hands that we're even as we can be an underdog with, say we're forty percent, uh, forty sixty underdog. Well, half the time we're 100% and half the time we're 40%. That sounds like a really good deal to me. And a lot of people... Well, I would just say that you need to look at just the math and 
maybe invest some time into these study tools. Get a free, go to pokerstrategy.com, look at Equilab. You can open the hand range tool and see really how vast a like 80% opening range is and how few hands can actually call off an all-in. Sometimes, it, against some players, it's as tight as like 5% of hands. So when they're opening 100% and they're only calling off with 5-10% of hands, you really can just close your eyes and click the all-in button. Mm. And I think that's so important because one thing I know in my progression, uh, you know, I was looking for hands to try to play flops with. You know, even with a you know two point five x sizing, when someone in late position is is raising, and I'm like, oh, you know, I'm looking for like Broadway. I'm looking, and at that point, I'm probably limiting myself to, you know, around ten percent of all hands, and I'm just allowing late position aggression to just take away, uh, you know, a lot of my blinds uncontested. So it's very important, and most of the time. Unless a hand plays particularly well, we should just be shoving a lot of the hands that, you know, I look down at Jack-10 suited and I'm just like, oh, man, they, you know, the the newer player mentality. Oh, I, I don't want to shove Jack-10 suited into ace-king. I played five hours in this online tournament. You know, I'm like down to, you know, 20 players away from the money bubble. And I think, you know, that's just the difference, right, between um, a professional or a very good player and someone who's like just trying to um you know get yeah, to the next there's level the difference between trying to win and trying to not lose is kind of how that that thinking goes you're not we're not trying to not lose we're trying to win all the money but when it when it uh becomes relevant to to blind play is a lot of these hands that you know we want to be taking to flops we need to understand that they really make better three bet shoves right yeah, some hand. So that's where we kind of can look at the difference between raw equity. So hands that have raw equity, like say an ace eight offsuit, does that hand have quite a bit of equity? Yeah, it does. But does that hand maybe play not as well post flop? Or I mean, you can even look at uh, maybe more extreme examples like uh, king five offsuit. I mean, if you plug that in, even if you plug in 7-deuce offsuit against a 20% range, it's going to have almost 30% equity. But if you have 7-deuce offsuit, you're not going to get to the river when you do have the best hand very often. When it comes deuce 8 king and someone bets into you, well, you're probably just going to fold. Yeah, you, you're certainly going to fold if they bet twice. Yeah, you don't know you're beating ace-10 or you're beating like any unpaired hand. And that's that's one of the harder things, I think, which is... And when I was listening to some, I think it was back in the day, Deuces Cracked with you, just understanding that certain hands, um, actually most hands, they're not going to play that well to a flop, you know, just in ideal situations that we want, like perfect reshove hands, which is like deuces through sevens, hands that, you know, aren't going to play well, and we can't really set mine when we're 20 big blindish. Um, we just really don't have the depth. So, I mean, those make really good shove hands. Um, yeah, or, I mean, even if stacks get deeper, maybe from the small blind is, and you have a pair of fours, that might, it might not be good enough to flat, but maybe it's good to put that in your three-bet bluffing range. Mm. So, I mean, we can really, we can start applying it to different stack sizes as well, where we should look at defending hands that we can 
play post-flop, hands that are going to realize their equity. Because when we're getting uh, 4-1 to one pot odds, when we get 4-1, to one, that means we only need really 20% equity. But the like 7-deuce example where we have 28% equity, that doesn't really matter because we're not going to get to the river very often. We're not going to realize our equity. We want to play hands that actually are going to realize our equity post-flop. Yeah, and I think one of the the differences in my progression has always been watching players like you that are very active and uh, are looking for good spots to build up a big stack because as you get to those later stages in tournaments, there's the absolute money bubble, which is you know, you're not making any money versus you're making money. And then there's also these ICM where you're going from 19 players down to two tables and there's a little bit, you know, money ups. And the good players are able to take these aggressive late position strategies and really pounce on and, and punish the blinds they're playing more timid and clearly are folding just way, way too often. So one of the biggest things, um, just to remind people, is is you want to be one of those players with the big stack that is being active um, that is opening. And I think next week would be good or next podcast to get into some concrete examples of, you know, what type of a hand range should we would be looking for from late position. And obviously it's very wide, but what are some of the trap situations we get into, you know, and how we can be the aggressive big stack. And then also from the small and big blind, just some, some situations there I think would be good. Yeah, I think we can kind of zoom in on some spots and really take a closer look. Uh, I do. I want to hear from the listeners, though. If there's, like, some part that you're struggling with, please write in, let us know. Say, hey, I'm having trouble playing my small connectors, like 8-9 offsuit from the blinds. What should I be looking for? What am I doing wrong? Send us your thoughts. Send us anything that you want to look at. Yeah, and you know what? You know, I think that's really important is just uh, let's plug some of our, our different ways people can reach out to us on social media because we don't want this to just be dry and, and you and I just, you know, talking about Pokemon. I know, dude, we could talk nice. forever, but we want, we want to hear from people. We want to make this interactive podcast. So you guys can get a hold of us. I set up a email. We're, we'll do a little mailbag section once we get the mailbag filled up. And that is top2podcast at gmail.com. Awesome. Top2podcast at gmail.com. You can also get a hold of us, top2podcast on Twitter. Uh, you can get a hold of me personally on Twitch. Check out one of my streams. I usually stream pretty much every Sunday. Uh, Twitch.tv slash Chase Bianchi. And, and I will tell you this, not just because you're the other half of my podcast, but I, I really do find it a lot more entertaining than I thought. I mean, you actually do a decent job at monologuing um, and not keeping it too dry, you know, and still, but I mean, like talking to, through, through um, certain spots and flagging things for re- reviews. So I would say, you know, if, and when I have time, I try to uh, watch a little bit of your, of your Twitch stream uh, whenever it pops on, I would really recommend yeah. people to, to take a look at it. It's a fun time. Uh, it really depends who's in chat. Like, if I got some of my goofy buddies that like to watch, we'll we'll sometimes get out on a limb. Sometimes, you know, we're at a final table and we're heavy strategy, and we we're trying to maximize the money makings. But it really depends, and uh, we have a good time. So come by chat. And if you get really lucky, I'll be in a really good mood that day, and I'll I'll make uh, Chase man chuckle quite a bit. And <laughs> and if you're very 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 lucky and we have time someday, I'll make Chase live on air explain Baby Alien uh, and some of his more <laughs> embar- embarrassing dude stories. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, you know, I think, you know, that's one of the big things where we're just going to go through some some concepts that we think are relevant. But really, it's harder for us at this stage in the podcast because it's so new and we want to hear from you guys. Is this uh, too generic and is are most of our listeners at an intermediate to um, a pretty good level of development of their game and they want to just go into like hand histories for 20 minutes? We'd love to do that. Yeah, I mean, I could I could bring you guys like, Hand histories from 1025 No Limit game I just played, or uh, 75 150 Limit Oldham game, or this 5K tournament that I'm going to play next week. So if that's if that's what you guys are interested in, we'll go that way. Yeah, we. If, oh, go ahead. If you guys want us to bullshit more, <laughs> we, we have no shortage. Yeah, and uh, this time we'll make sure you're actually recording, Chase. Uh, oh my gosh! Chase, oh, dude, was... it's not recording. Oh, you're oh, the worst. You are the worst. I, I I really hope that it's not recording, so I can just. <laughs> Insta-quit you on this forever. Um, All right, dude. Um, uh, is the friendship over? Uh, possibly. Possibly. Best man status uh, rescinded. <laughs> um, but uh, but we really do want this format to be uh, to be and grow into something where probably about half of it we can come up with things that we we want people to listen to what we have to say and what we think is is viable. But at least half we want it to be led and driven by other people, you know, whether that be, you know, having a guest on down the road, um, because in the community, I'm very blessed to be around commerce. And there's some really, really good poker players that I know that play nosebleed stakes. And, you know, it's yeah, I know, I know plenty of local grinders on here that uh, would have plenty to plenty of good things to say too. Yeah. So, I mean, we can, we can just we can we can go in a lot of different ways with this, and that's why I think we want to keep everyone that listens to this in mind that that this format is is pretty open, and we don't come to the table every week with this is what it has to be. But I think we had a couple ideas for for next week. I mean, you want to go over uh, your transition, Chase? Your tell yeah. what you're doing. Ooh, I'm excited about my study games, man. I I put in, I mean, I haven't put in that much time, but I've watched three training videos. That are like forty minutes long. I put in a couple hours of uh, play money on stars, running up that play money account. <laughs> awesome. awesome! I got it up to like fifteen thousand chips. I started at ten thousand, so it's not a big accomplishment. Okay. But that's been really fun. Like I, I have this goal to be a decently well-rounded mixed player by the time LAPC starts in February. Oh, awesome. Yeah, because we have a really good, like, 6120 that kicks up and some other mixed games. And, uh, you know, it's not uncommon at, uh, you know, in the Southern California area for games to be, like, 16 to 20, 20 game mixed rotations. Badoogie, Badesi, no qualifier. You know, a lot of different stud variants, a lot of just crazy zany stuff that, you know, we'll go into and we'll talk about how we approach that from a study standpoint and what we think of the games, what you're weak at, what you're awesome at. And hopefully by that time in a couple of weeks, you've completely stopped playing Pokemon. So I think that'll be, that'd be a good uh, next, next. Dude, if podcast. I spent every minute I played Pokemon studying poker, I would be, uh, uh, I don't know, stuck book level right now. You you would have a lot of money for a lot of, lot more Pokemons. <laughs> Is this that pretty much what would happen? Oh my gosh. You know, it's, it's endless feedback. Mind blowing. Yes. <laughs> Let's not get sucked into that black hole. So thank you, folks, uh, for listening to us and surviving take number three of podcast take two. Three. Last take. Yes. Oh, my gosh, dude, it's not recording. Uh-